Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, August 31st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, some communities in Mississippi are reevaluating the public display of Confederate monuments. Hear from two elected boards with different ideas on approaching the issue. How will Mississippi attorneys respond to the U.S. Supreme Court request regarding the state's flag's Confederate emblem? And in our book club segment, advice on keeping your vehicle in top shape for your Labor Day weekend road trip. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Division over Confederate monuments is coming to a head across the state. The debate over Confederate symbols on public display is regaining momentum since the recent protests in Charlottesville, Virginia. At present, two elected boards in different parts of Mississippi are reevaluating public displays in different ways. In LaFleur County, a group of citizens want to become a commission board to take actions like raising a statue at the county courthouse honoring an African-American figure. It would be placed near a Confederate statue erected more than 100 years ago. The Board of Supervisors is considering the request. Robert Moore is the second district representative for the LaFleur County Board of Supervisors. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby more about the request. A committee of citizens spearheaded by Troy Brown Jr. would not asking to remove the Confederate memorial statue that's currently on the grounds of the courthouse, but for them to be commissioned as a committee that would coordinate, raise funds for a separate statue, one that would commemorate the accomplishment of African Americans. They primarily said that right now only half a story is being told, not only in the history books, but also across the state in the displaying of Confederate memorial statues And what they wanted to do was to create banners in this community with regard to the statue that's on the courthouse grounds. So they are basically asking to be commissioned. And, of course, the Board of Supervisors uh, said before we commission a committee or anything of that nature, we table that to have a discussion about what would be the best route to take with this committee. Are you in favor of that idea? I'm in favor of having a conversation, not only uh, about creating the banners on the ground of the courthouse, but about the Confederate statue in itself. And by that, I mean that primarily the commissioning of a committee to put a, to create banners, you got two different uh, messages being fit. One message you're sending is the, the statue commemorating slavery. And of course, it was put there during the Jim Crow era. So not only is it commemorating slavery and also the uh, celebrating and commemorating fatalist acts against the government of the United States. So that's one message being sent. The other message is we are celebrating African-Americans' accomplishments in this story. We are talking about commemorating our past history in terms of our accomplishments or how we rose from slavery 
to where we are now. And, of course, there are those people who say that we got bigger problems that are confronting us. So that's just another conversation that we need to add to this business of celebrating Confederacy and slavery and Jim Crow and all of the ill that come with Jim Crow. As it pertains to the monument issue, why is that conversation happening now, in your opinion? Well, I think that the incident in Charlottesville is one of those motivating factors, much like the whole business of the Confederate flag. The movement was, I think the movement was motivated by the incident that happened in South Carolina. So I'm not trying to suggest that this issue has not always been an underlining, seething kind of situation. It, it didn't just happen, but the incident in Charlottesville certainly uh, was was a primary motivator for citizens all over the country to say, okay, fine, let us do something about this. Are you in favor or against the removal of Confederate monuments? And as it pertains to your county, would that be one of the options on the table for the Board of Supervisors? I think that it is one of the options that's on the table, and I'm willing to have a conversation about it because I just don't believe that we shouldn't you know, be, be open to embrace all sides of this. I believe that we should be able to talk about it and find some middle ground, if there is middle ground, or common ground. And nobody want to talk about the message that Confederate memorials are speaking to. It certainly is not a love of country, but I know that it's speaking to us every day. I am so. Robert Moore is on the Board of Supervisors representing District 2 in LaFleur County. Thanks for being on Mississippi Edition. Okay, and thank you for having me. The LaFleur County statue is among more than 40 Confederate monuments standing across Mississippi. In the city of Macomb, the city board is discussing removing a Confederate monument from City Hall. Tommy McKenzie is a selectman at large for the city of Macomb. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby he's against the option. Well, one of the selectmen that's on the board um, amended the agenda last Tuesday night to remove a monument that was placed at City Hall in in 1916. It's been there over 100 years, and it was a gift from the dollars of the Confederacy. You know, it's a monument simply to list the regiments from Pike County that fought in the Civil War. And I think this issue stems from a Confederate flag motion that was made several weeks before you know it, it's all part of the same the, the the same theme that's going on across the country to eliminate anything confederate from any public location so we we discussed that openly in the board and we decided to table the matter there's enough votes there to remove it but we decided to table it because there are some concerns about what's legal what's exactly where it can be moved and what we can do as a public body with it. So, you know, it will come back up again probably at the next board. What is your gut feeling on this national movement now to remove Confederate symbols from public view? My gut feeling on a national level and even on a local level is that we're actually talking about something totally different than these monuments or the flag. I mean, this is, to me, an argument about something else. It's about lots of failed policies and trying to blame. It's trying to gain power and keep their power and trying to stir up a base to keep these people that are presenting these failed messages uh, to keep themselves in power. 
personally, if I felt the monument and changing the flag would make anyone's life better tomorrow and make things better for everyone, I'd be all for it. Uh, I think the passion for this is misguided. I think it's being done incorrectly. I think it's making matters worse. I just really wish the conversation would be directed a little bit different uh, on how we get to the same goal. But I, I, you know, I really don't think this is a discussion about a flag or a monument. And we now get to a point in 2017 where you have societies that are more segregated than ever. This is not the way to make things better by bringing up these items that are just controversial uh, to pit one group against another. And, and I think that's kind of the goal here is to divide. It's not to bring unity. It's to divide. And it's making things much more difficult. If there were a vote held at the next council meeting to remove the Confederate monument, that you would vote against it? Yes, I would vote against it, and I have um, you know, stated that very publicly. What do Confederate symbols and the state flag and Confederate monuments tell you? What do they mean to you? When I look at those, you know, I look at how far we've come. When I look at the state flag, I look at something that says, that's a place that this society will never be again. Tommy McKenzie is selectman at large for the city of Macomb. Thanks for joining us on Mississippi Edition. Thank you for having me. Macomb's six-member board is racially divided. Mayor Whitney Rawlings holds the tie-breaking vote. He agrees the monument should be moved, but a location needs to be found. Coming up, a Mississippi attorney's fight to take down the state flag leads to a request from the U.S. Supreme Court for the state to defend its position on the issue. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi has a September deadline to file a response with the U.S. Supreme Court defending the state flag with the Confederate emblem. Grenada attorney and judge Carlos Moore is requesting the court hear the case. He argues the flag with the Confederate emblem is racist and unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. However, a federal judge and an appeals court have previously ruled Moore hasn't proved he's suffered tangible injury because of the flag, which is required under the amendment. Attorney for Moore, Mike Scott, is partner at the Reed Smith firm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier they're optimistic. The state had originally said it was waiving the right to file a response, but the court uh, normally will not grant cert, will not take a case uh, for consideration without asking both sides to state their position. So we think this is a really very positive sign for us. It shows the court is giving serious consideration to our petition for cert, and we hope that they will see that the issues are important enough that they should take the case. We'll know that sometime in October, probably. What would lead the court to take this case? Well, it raises a very important issue of whether a state or a county or a city, the government, can express a view that one race is preferred or superior to another. Is that enough if a state does that to violate the Equal Protection Clause? Or 
is mere messaging, and this is the word used by the Fifth Circuit, not within the scope of the Equal Protection Clause, so that if the state expresses a view, such as white supremacy is good, but doesn't do anything else, is that immune from attack under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause? We believe that when the state expresses that kind of a view, and we believe that it is expressing that view through the state flag, we believe that's a violation in and of itself of the equal protection rights of those who are relegated to second-class citizenship by the state's messaging. What would lead the court not to take the case, in your mind? The issue that usually causes the court not to take cases, which is they get 8,000 petitions a year, and they only have time to consider less than 100 of them. So you can have a very meritorious case. You can have a great case, but it still might not make the cut. Governor Phil Bryant has said the people voted for the flag in 2001, and his argument is that people can vote to take it down, but it's the people of Mississippi that should make that decision. Well, they can't really vote to take it down because there's not a referendum now on the ballot, and it would be up to the legislature to put it back on the ballot. So that's kind of an empty statement by the governor. As matters now stand, the state legislature seems paralyzed and unable to do anything about this flag. This is a matter of the Equal Protection Clause. Mississippi legislature has had plenty of opportunity to do the right thing here. And we know that if a court takes our case and says that Carlos has standing, we still have to prove that that flag is, in fact, demeaning hate speech by the state of Mississippi. And we're going to be prepared to prove it. This is not some flag, really, that goes back even to the Civil War. This is a flag that was born in 1894 as a Jim Crow banner for the state. Well, your response to supporters of the flag who say they take it very personally, this is about heritage and and states' rights. Our case does not have anything to do with an individual who wants to fly a Confederate battle flag or wants to fly the Mississippi state flag as his or her personal possession on his hat, on his shirt, on his house, on his car. What we're talking about is the state and the state should not be flying a flag that is so divisive and so demeaning to a segment of its population. And people do get this confused. You know, I hear people all the time saying, I've got a right to fly that flag. Yes, you do as an individual, but it's very different when it's the state that is the sponsor of the message. Well, Mr. Scott, I thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Have a good day. Matt Steffi is professor of law at Mississippi College School of Law. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the development is a standard procedure for the court. I think for the attorney challenging it, Mr. Moore, it's a welcome development. In other words, if the Supreme Court is going to hear the case, this is something the court would do. On the other hand, it's still unlikely in statistical terms and given the state of the law that the court will decide to hear this case. The court operates under the rule of four, that is, they only hear cases when four members wish to hear a case and vote to grant review. And essentially what Mr. Moore is arguing that the court needs to do is to change the law, change the understanding of the Equal Protection Clause, 
to cover emotional harm. You know, this is not the first time somebody has challenged the Confederate battle emblem in a state flag. It happened in Georgia. It's happened in Mississippi before. And across the board, these challenges have been unsuccessful. That, In other words, the law is fairly well settled that as offensive as the symbol is to many citizens, that it is not understood to be unconstitutional. For Mr. Moore to prevail, he needs the Supreme Court to revisit that issue and change the current state of the law. That's essentially what he's asking the court to do now, the reason he's arguing the court should take the case. And this gives the state an opportunity to argue that the law is well settled, that review isn't necessary. So I expect the state will file a brief, a response, arguing essentially that this is a well-settled issue, that it's a political question for the state of Mississippi, that it is not embraced by the 14th Amendment, and then we'll see. Then the court will take a look at the petition and decide whether or not it wants to take a look at the issue. What's the answer? The answer legally so far has been this is an issue for the citizens to work out themselves through the political process, through their elected officials, as we've seen in Charlottesville, as we've seen in Baltimore, as we haven't yet seen in Mississippi, but may see yet. These Confederate emblems have been taken down through the political process. And consequently, whether the court wants to wade in to remove the last remaining use of this in a state flag, I think is unlikely. I think it would be preferable if the elected officials of the state made this decision themselves. I think that moving this issue forward better comes from the state itself than by command of a federal court. Well, thank you so much for your insight and for speaking to us about this issue. It's my pleasure. Thank you for calling. In a statement, Governor Phil Bryant maintains previous comments saying, my position has not changed. Whatever the state flag is or is not should be decided by Mississippi voters. Coming up, as we head into the Labor Day weekend, advice on handling a breakdown on your road trip. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. Many Mississippi families are preparing for travel with the Labor Day holiday weekend just a day away. In today's book club, we talk roadside safety tips with expert Walt Brinker. His book, Roadside Survival, provides advice on how to prevent and contend with vehicle breakdowns before heading out on a trip. He says his lessons are gleaned from providing over 2,000 free-of-charge roadside assists. Author Walt Brinker is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel and Vietnam war veteran. He tells us main reasons for breakdowns during a road trip. The breakout of the reasons is about three quarters of them are tire related. The other 25% is related to uh, a combination of running out of gas, overheating, having an electrical issue normally related to the battery, or being locked out of your car. And so there are things you can do to prevent breakdowns in all of these areas. Let's look at tires first because that's the most likely reason for a breakdown. The most fundamental reason for a tire to fail is underinflation, which causes blowouts at highway speeds. So the most important thing is to be sure that your tires are in good shape. Spare tires are neglected, and I found that 80% of the time that the tire 
fails on a car and they're trying to spare tire, the spare tire is either too low in air or flat, so it cannot be used. Let me ask you this, Walt, because we know on the inside of the driver's side door, it tells you the pressure for your tires, where they should be. What about the spare tire? How much air should be in there? Well, it varies with the model of the car. These days, there's a space saver or donut spare tire. They almost always take 60 pounds per square inch. That's a lot more than the, the other tires take. Normally, the other tires take from 28 to 32 PSI. So if you don't have uh, 60 PSI in those space saver spare tires, they don't perform right. And so that's why I advocate having in your car, among other things, uh, a 12-volt air compressor so you can tune up the tires. That label on, on the door jam of the car will tell you what the pressure should be cold. That's before the car has been driven at all. Let me interrupt you to to ask, because we haven't told about this, that you are the guy who stops how many times a year to help stranded motorists out of the goodness of your heart? Well, I haven't done the numbers by year, but I've, I've been doing this for a long time, several decades. I don't have an exact count, but I know it's well over 2,000. It's probably getting close to 3,000 by now. I went to a friend's funeral in Texas back in February on the on the return trip back. And I had 10 assists, five for flat tires, two out of gas, one loose battery clamp, and one locked out of the car, I think it was. How do you help somebody get back in their car if they're locked out? Well, uh, I have special tools that I can use that the cops call them burglary tools. <laughs> but I, I, can, I, I can break in any car without damaging the car. But the solution I advocate to, being, uh, to staying locked out of your car is for each person to have stashed in a key box with magnets on it a door key, a simple door key, which does not need to be the one that, that with the chip in it to work the ignition. Practically every vehicle that I know of has got a slot by the, by the driver's door handle that you can put a, a key into and mechanically unlock the door. And that is the key that I advocate having in a box under your car. You know, some people say, well, the crooks will find the key and steal my car. That's that's crazy. Uh, most crooks who steal cars or will steal a car with the engine running uh, or, or with the keys in the, in the ignition, they are not going to take the time to try and wonder whether there's a key stashed under that car or, or even try and spend time looking for it in one of many places that could be stashed under the car. It seems crazy to me that someone will run out of gas. I mean, it's not that difficult to look at your gas gauge. <laughs> no, it's it's really not. You know, some people's gas gauges don't work, though. And I found several cases where the gauge said uh, a quarter full, and the guy swore he had gas in the tank. And I said, let's just try it, because we tried other things, and, and it didn't work. And I'll pour a gallon of gas in the tank, and it fires right up. So, <laughs> you know, so, and, and also, many times when you run out of gas, you'll be on the freeway, and the, the freeway's lanes for driving are normally level, usually. When you run out of gas, you kind of pull over on the shoulder, which is typically slanted to the right a bit. So you add a gallon of gas, and that gas tends to pool in one corner of the gas tank and will not ever have access to the intake that goes to the engine. So my solution to that is I call it rock the car. I open the passenger door, and I stand on the frame of the car, and I kind of jump up and down and make the car whole. The whole car is rocking. It's yawing from left to right. Meantime, the gasoline is sloshing in the tank, and it finds the intake, and bingo, the car starts. So it may get you to the next station. Oh, yeah, you can't go very far on on a gallon of gas. Of course, when you get the car back on level ground, that problem goes away, too, because you don't have the pooling anymore. You have a book called Roadside Survival. You also have a website for people to find some tips. Is that right? The website is just loaded with good stuff. It's called roadsidesurvival.com, and there are many pages there. There are pages with links to several other sources of information about roadside survival, tires, electrical, every aspect of it, there are links to it in there. There are also several links to uh, media segments I've done on the subject. There are links to 
presentations I've given to driver's ed teachers. There's a video that I've done for for the benefit of law enforcement. That's really a packed website. Walt Brinker is an all-around good Samaritan, roadside helper or savior, I guess, and the author of Roadside Survival. Walt, thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's Season Pass. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.